Rabbi, would you begin? Thank you. That's it? Come on. Come on. Thank you so much uh, for having me, and I want to thank uh, the hospitality I've received from Farouk and from Phyllis, and I want to thank uh, my colleagues who will be presenting, who have honored me by showing up and honored you, and I want to thank the church for hosting us. Dr. Erisman, thank you so much, and for you for offering me uh, an opportunity to share some ideas. I have to tell you, I'm much more nervous than usual. When I'm in synagogue, I know people are not going to like what I'm going to say. Um, but with you, I care a lot more, so I'm a little nervous. I, wanted, I prepared something that um, may get me into trouble. I figured you probably don't want me to play it too safe, and you probably want me to be a little provocative, and, I, and, and you probably have some comfort zone with that. But just in case, I'll start with a joke, just so that we... Uh, so um, it tells you a little bit about my religion. A German and Italian, I'm not, I'm not going to do the priest and the rabbi, I was going to do that. And a German and an Italian and a Jew go into a bar. The German says, oh, it's a hot day, I'm exhausted and tired, give me a beer. The bartender gives him a beer. The Italian says, it's a hot day, I'm exhausted, I feel fatigued, give me some Cabernet. And the bartender gives him a Cabernet. And the Jew walks up and says, oh, I'm hot, I'm exhausted, I'm thirsty, I think I have diabetes. <laughs> the point of that is this. What is Judaism? How can Judaism cause anything historically? What does it mean that it has an impact on world affairs? And, that's, and because the truth is that Judaism is Jews. And it's all kinds of different Jews from all kinds of different periods of time and all kinds of eras. And you probably know as well as I that it gets a little complicated when you start saying there's this idea, there's this kind of metaphysical invisible thing, and it causes something in history. I bet all of you have had a chance to um, overly saturate yourselves with my first slide. Uh, and so you know that one of my first questions is, when I ask people, actually, people usually offer it to me unsolicited. And uh, I wonder if my colleagues feel the same way. They're like, oh, you're a rabbi. Ugh, religion just causes problems. You know, it causes violence and war. I get a lot of that. Um, maybe my colleagues don't, but people seem very free to tell the rabbi, especially those who are Jewish, that the rabbi's wrong about everything. That's part of our culture. And I'd be like, Rabbi, religion, it just causes war. And one of the things, because, so in one example of what does religion cause on the world stage in history, the most popular answer I hear is violence and war. It'd be better if it didn't. And so just, it's just a, another provocative thing. I'm going to share a series of provocative ideas. And one of them is, I said, well, the Nazis killed over 6 million Jews and millions of others, uh, including many Americans. Stalinism, 50 million people slaughtered. The Cambodian killing fields based on weird interpretations of Maoism. The dropping of the atomic and hydrogen bombs. The genocide of the Tutsis not so long ago. And we have to ask ourselves, did religion have anything to do with any of those? And for the most part, I think the answer is, if you're going to say yes, you are reaching. If you're going to say, because Hitler liked Wagner and used Aryan myths, it's religion, I, I, you know, I, 
I, I think you can say just about anything. Um, and so it raises questions, even looking back historically, about what religion causes. When I went to public school, and I went to a very good one, I was just taught naturally that the reason France fought with Spain was over religion. The reason England and Spain went to war was France was over religion, right? The reason the Crusades happened was over religion. But I think it makes me start to question, is that too simplistic? And are there other reasons? A lot of people want to say 9-11 was about religion or Islamism. I was influenced by the PBS documentary made by Lowell Bergman, one of America's premier journalists, really one of my heroes, which raised a lot of questions about whether 9-11 was about religion at all or whether it was about all kinds of geopolitical issues and struggles. And then the Arab-Israeli conflict, which I assume I'm expected to talk about. I told Phyllis I would only do this if I don't have to speak about that. And she said, no, you're going to speak about that. <laughs> to which I said, yes, ma'am. And uh, but it raised the question, is that driven by religion? Is it driven by something else? So, I just re leave it as a question, which is I am going to try to address these issues. I'm somewhat uncomfortable doing so, but because you know, that, that often there are larger issues of power, of history, of prejudice that go on. And I don't know if religion is the factor you can lift out and say this is the, the factor doing most of the work. My next provocative statement, maybe this isn't provocative at all and I'm just bluster, is that the theme is the, uh, the Abrahamic faiths. So one of the things I wanted to bring up is I've grown up in a very ecumenical era. And I'm part of interfaith networks and so on and so forth, and we have discussions. And sometimes there is a, such a desire to get to know each other and have peaceful relationships and coexistence and working together and finding common ground that sometimes we play a little bit of shorthand with the fact that religions are all saying the same thing but in different guise. And we all share so much more than our differences. And I think sometimes we take intellectual shortcuts. And so you gave me an opportunity to pick one right now to talk about. And that is whether there is such thing as an Abrahamic faith. My Touchstone is a book published by Princeton University Press in 2012 by a biblical scholar at Harvard. And he wrote a book, uh, I'll quote it on the next page, about the way Abraham is understood in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He himself is Jewish, so I'm welcome to have other scholars and others uh, correct him. But one of the things he points out is a little mischief done by five words. So in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, <laughs> How you translate and think of those five words is, will tell you a lot about what you think Abrahamic faith is. So what Dr. Levinson says is that, and it's complicated to translate in the Hebrew. You have options. Let's just say it means something like, and he, presumably Abraham, and a or Abram, Abram believed in God or, be or believed God. Doesn't have to be believed in 
or trusted God, or trusted in God, and he reckoned it to him as a righteousness, as a tzedakah, where a lot of people know as the Jewish charity box is a tzedakah box, same word. And what he argues is that if you think of it in the second bullet point, what if you think it, that means because he had faith in God? And what if you think of, when you think, well, what does it mean? That, what was special about Abraham that we all share? It is that he had the proper beliefs about God. He was the first one to recognize the true God. He had the right beliefs. He had the right metaphysical picture. Everyone else thought there was a God of the ocean. And he had, but no, no, Abraham got his theology right. So is it faith about beliefs? And is participating in Abrahamic faith, being a descendant of Abraham, being under Abraham's umbrella, regardless of your religion, have to do with you too enter into that covenant by having the right beliefs about God, God the Father? Or could what it is that Abraham did is because he submitted to God. He trusted God. What God said, he did. He trusted God. He submitted to God. And is the idea more about to participate in Abrahamic faith is, has to do with submission to God's will. And as I won't cover it all now because what do I know about it? But in Islam, my understanding from his book is that it's not so much being a part of the Abrahamic tradition is to recognize Abraham as one prophet among other prophets. But it's not that um, having the same beliefs Abraham had puts you in his umbrella. And finally, what if it means, and this is what I'm calling, or what Professor Levinson calls the Jewish one. I'm implying that the first one tends to be um, a, a reading through Christianity, or by Christianity. The second one tends to be a reading you find in some Muslim texts. And the third one is one you generally find in the Jewish tradition, which is it doesn't have anything to do with Abraham having a proper theology. And Abraham did not keep kosher. Abraham did not have revelation. Abraham did not keep the Sabbath. There's no revelation yet from God. Why he is picked seems to be only the fact that God has a purpose for the future. And he basically says to Abraham, in the future, generations after your death, there will be a plan that I am unfolding, and you need to do your part. Essentially, that it's what's called a promissory faith. It's a faith in the future. And I'm going to bring that back in a little bit about what the heck that means. But it's more like it, 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 it's highly significant. It's not that I have the correct beliefs about God in the present. It is the idea that there, God has an intention for the future of world affairs. And Abraham, Abraham is special because he, God chose him in a sense because he had a trust in the future way beyond his lifetime. So I'll come back to that later, or you can ask me a question about it. To quote uh, John Levinson from Inheriting Abraham, says, given these conflicting interpretations of the supposedly common figure, the claim that Abraham is a source of reconciliation among the three traditions, increasingly called Abrahamic, is as simplistic as it is now widespread. 
Historically, Abraham has functioned much more as a point of differentiation among the three religious communities than as a node of commonality. The assumption that we can recover a neutral Abraham that is independent of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, yet somehow authoritative over them, somehow the real core that we're sharing is quite unwarranted. That was provocative idea number two. We'll move on. I'm going to use as an excuse, I'm going to blame it on Farouk and Phyllis, okay? Can, can I do that? Um, uh, uh, I, we've, been we've been scapegoated so much Jews, that let's scapegoat some other people for it. Um, I'm going to do such a quickie on what Judaism is, uh, because, but I know it's not necessarily the impact on contemporary world affairs, but maybe you'll find something in what I say that you say, no, you're quite wrong, Rabbi. Number eight, look good, you know, like I think is important. But some basics is that from, I speak on behalf of most Jews, but not all. In general, religion is a matter of behavior, not of belief. In general, the, even in Hebrew, although it has changed, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit, over millennia, normally you ask in Hebrew or in Yiddish or in Ladino, are you observant? Meaning, do you practice? People are not asked normally, do you believe in God? That is a very modern question. I'll never forget in the 80s, I was on a bus and I got lost. It was a, it was a terrible story. But um, uh, I got kicked off of a Jewish communal farm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so it was one of these, like, weird sagas. And I had no, I, my Hebrew was terrible. And I, I, was, I was young. And uh, on a bus... I, you know, I, I obviously, look, I have no idea. Try navigating a Middle Eastern bus station, good luck. Thank God we can all rent cars and use our phones now. It used to be just an experience. And someone saw that I had no idea where I was. I was completely lost in Tel Aviv. And he came up to me and he said, you look lost, I'll help you. But I have one question for you. Do, do you believe in God? And it was a Jew, an, an Orthodox Jew. You know, I looked at him and I had studied academically and it's just not a question that would have been asked. It, I'm going to get to it later, but a lot of what we call religious and really religious and the true religion and the authentic religion of the past, much of it is an, a modern invention. Um, as a, a better scholar than I once said, fundamentalism in many ways is a modern movement with a very anti-modern rhetoric. Now I'll get to that a little later. Are you observant? Do you, do you do stuff? And the do stuff is usually, do you restrict your observance on the Sabbath? Do you, do you go to work on Shabbat on the Sabbath on Saturday? Do you not? Do you, do you uh, drive on the Sabbath? Or do, do you do stuff? On, do you keep a, Shabbat, a Sabbath observance? Do you keep the kosher dietary laws? Do you stay away from cheeseburgers and bacon and, and uh, things like that? And do you make community? I didn't put down pray. It's not so much about prayer, but do you, um, do you make a community by being part of a synagogue? Doesn't mean you necessarily believe in God. Many people, some of them who are here today that I've been very close with in the past have told me, uh, there's a famous Jewish joke, and it, well, it's not a joke, it's, it's probably an urban legend that's really true which is at the, back of the, at the back of the congregation, there's Goldstein and Bernstein. And one day, the rabbi turns to Goldstein and says, Goldstein, why do you keep coming to synagogue? And Goldstein says, Rabbi, I come to synagogue for God. 
And then he looks at Bernstein next to him. He says, Bernstein, why do you come to synagogue? And Bernstein says, Rabbi, I come to synagogue for Goldstein. <laughs> so I don't want to say it is they pray and they worship. It was that you understand that you want to make a community. And you could be living in Tehran, or you could be living in Cairo, or you could be living in Baltimore. But it was the idea that, yeah, join it doesn't mean you're... You can be religious and be coming for Bernstein because he's your friend. Not that it has to do with your faith, um, your metaphysical um, uh, commitments. Um, this is basically was the subject of my dissertation, which I did not finish, because I basically gave up on academia understanding any of this. I mean, I just had too many advisors who were like, this doesn't make any sense. People don't do religious actions unless they have metaphysical commitments. And I'm just like, you don't know enough Jews. I mean, I don't know what I so, um, so after 11 years, I left uh, my doctoral program at Stanford and uh, went to seminary. Now, um, the above was all involuntary. In almost every country until the 1800s, there was a Jewish country that basically started in 1000 BC and was more or less destroyed by, well, had its ups and downs and eventually was completely destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE. So there was a Jewish country for a millennium, and then there wasn't. And basically, from 70 CE until the 1800s, Jews, with very few exceptions, were not entitled to civil rights and citizenship in the countries they lived in. So they, were, they lived in places basically under the, local, the protection, the protexia of the locals. And a lot of it depended. Did the mayor like them? Was the mayor paid off? Let's say a Polish mayor in, in uh, the Pale of Settlement. Do you know, or was, was he a good guy? And if a Jewish store got destroyed and burned in an anti-Semitic act, did he round up some suspects? You know, you're rounding up the usual suspects. Or did he say, well, you know what? Some Jew probably did something, probably deserved to have their store burned. They were not entitled to legal protections. So for Jews in general, they were restricted in where they could live. For most Jews in most countries, their passport would not say Russian. Their passport would not say Spanish. Their, pass their, their, their papers would say under nationality, Jewish. For almost 2,000 years. The exception was United States, 1776, with an extraordinary history of, um, of well, there's some very interesting things about uh, the relation of the Founding Fathers and Islam, but that's not my topic, um, that were very positive. And with the Jews extremely positive in making Jewish citizens in 1776, an extraordinary thing, and in France in 1789. But unfortunately, although France committed to the rights of Jews, very quickly there was, at the end of the 1800s, there was a dramatic worldwide current event called the Dreyfus Affair in which a guiltless French officer who happened to be Jewish was essentially tried and convicted of treason, um, essentially convincing most Jews in the European world that these countries like the United States and France, they're the only two who let us be citizens. Germany started in the 1830s. Um, they're never going to really accept us. And it was basically the reaction to the Dreyfus Affair that caused Herzl to publish a book on Zionism saying, this is why we can never be safe in England and France and other places, and we're going to need a country of our own. And that occurs at the end of the 1800s. But again, for a Jew who lives in a ghetto or a village in 
in an you know, isolated, whether it's in Egypt or whether it's in Poland or Russia or Ukraine uh, or Italy, their food they bought was just kosher food. On, no, the, the shops were closed on Saturday. They weren't living in Warsaw. They weren't allowed to. They weren't living in Moscow. They weren't allowed to. So that it wasn't like, yes, I eat kosher food, uh, food and keep the Sabbath because I'm really religious. It's just what they were. That the, 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 that, that's, the meat was slaughtered by a rabbi. You know, so it was kosher. I mean, it's just what they were. Stores were closed on Saturday. It's not like someone said, well, I'll open up a Jewish store in the middle of the Jewish ghetto. It, it just didn't happen. So yeah, that's part of what my professors, I'm saying, didn't understand, that the evolution of Judaism was not based on your belief, but just whether you practice. And for the most part, it was an involuntary act. Um, we have one line of creed. It's only one, that God is one, and it is interpreted in many different ways. And I won't go into it now. But one thing I will say about it is that coming to knowledge of God is done through study. And part of the oneness of our creed is that the universe is all operates under one set of laws. Now, for most of us who study science now, that makes perfect sense. But in the ancient world, the forces of the ocean and the forces of fire and the forces of wind could in many ways be seen as conflicting systems. And the Jewish idea that everything is under one system led to the idea in Judaism that the study of nature and the study of texts go hand in hand. If you understand how medicine works, you are coming to knowledge of God because you're coming to the knowledge of the one system, the laws that govern the one system. The rabbis of the Talmud were very influenced by the Greek notion of logos, or they also would call Sophia, that there is an underlying structure to the universe. And that underlying structure is a divine structure, and it operates according to law. And it includes moral laws. It's not just uh, Newtonian physics. It includes it's all the stuff you and I read in the paper. I read the latest article. Am I, supposed to, am I supposed to yell at my kids, or am I not supposed to yell at my kids? Am I supposed to enroll them in soccer, or am I not supposed to enroll them in soccer? Like, they, you know, we're all trying to be better parents. There are laws that govern friendship. There are laws that govern why a ball drops and why the stars move. And so in Judaism, the, uh, it's always had a very intellectual bent that is rooted in its one line of creed. Because the more you understand the logos, the underlying structure of the universe, the more you really are coming close to God. Um, it's already implied that the content of one's beliefs are highly personal. So that the simplest way I can put it is that for, and again, I'll leave my colleagues, I don't mean to speak for you in any way, but certainly I have had non-Jewish friends who are comfortable asking me, well, what do you believe about God? And what's your relationship with God? And, 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 um, and, and what's your faith? In Judaism, that would be similar to saying, when you're in your bedroom with your wife, what do you do? Do you do the crazy stuff? Do you do the, like, you're not crazy at all? Like, like, I'm just curious. It's kind of like bad locker room talk. One's relationship with God in Judaism is unmediated, by any structure. It's unmediated by the rabbi. Rabbi is just a teacher. And in fact, today, rabbis like me get to stand up and feel very important. For much of Jewish history, the rabbi was the old guy in the back row, didn't even lead the worship. That was very much adopted by a Protestant American model, that the rabbi should be up front and inspire people and all the rest of it. If you ever watch like Fiddler on the Roof, which is 
kind of a fake romantic notion of Jewish history, but it gets some things right. No one pays attention to the rabbi. You know what I mean? If you want to get something done, go to someone who knows something. Yeah. But like, if you want to know, is a chicken kosher, if it has black spots, then go to the rabbi in the back of the third row and he'll look up from his book and tell you. So that it's a very, very different model. Um, and so there's no mediation between you and God. And of course, in Jewish tradition, you're expected to evolve in your ideas of God. You're not ex what we teach children is not what the rabbi believes. It makes it very hard to have Sunday school, and it's a perennial problem. It's a perennial problem even today in Poway and Rancho Bernardo. Do I teach the kids what I believe, which they're not capable of believing? We don't teach nine-year-olds physics. I once tried to do a biology lesson about the cell and compare it to the system of God, and they're like, well, we've never stuck. What's a cell? You know, and I'm like, hey, I thought you guys were supposed to be doing AP courses at eight years old, but apparently I'm wrong. The education is not so different than when I was young. Um, and so, it, it's, of course, your, 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 your beliefs, and they're personal. You don't ask about them. Can you still hear me? Because I know my microphone came off a little. Um, and I'll move down a little bit. Basically, are you saying, well, Rabbi, there's no clear description of what God is? Yes, there's no clear description of what God is. As Abraham Joshua Heschel said, the basic Jewish idea is we cannot know what God is, except that God is thoroughly transcendent, maybe like the structure of the universe, but we can know what God wants. This goes back to Abraham. What God is is not what we're about. What God wants for the future of our species is incredibly important and can be known through study and through the relationship to the, the prophetic will of God. Um, and so I'm going to skip down a little bit. At the bottom, uh, one of the things I want to point out is so faith is not in a belief system, but it's like the word in Hebrew, emunah, from which we get the word amen, is the word for faithfulness to another party. So for a Jew, when they hear, well, what is your faith? And I know they, someone wants to hear my metaphysical description of the true theology. The word faithful in Hebrew, it's like asking you, um, what, is your, what, is your faith, like, what is your faith in your wife? I mean, I have a very happy marriage. I'm like... It's not about, do I believe my wife exists? And what is my justification for believing my wife exists? That's not my faithfulness in my marriage. That's the, so in Judaism, faith is a relationship word. And so in that sense, you can understand that, um, how did I put it up here? Uh, it, you, can you, you can really only get to God through behavior and people. If you ever find someone, if, if I'm praying and I'm deep in my prayer and I'm pleading to God, and someone comes up to me and they tap me on the, on the arm, it, exactly the time that the Jewish law says you're not allowed to interrupt a prayer, silence is mandatory, and they say, excuse me, can you pass me my purse? The law says, you stop your prayer, you smile, and you pass them their purse. You cannot get to God through insulting other people. It would be nice to have a sign on the wall that says, please don't interrupt on page 27. But if they do, you don't insult someone because your faithfulness to God is through the people and, uh, and, and through the world. The Bible is divine because deep, repeated study reveals thousands of meanings. So basically, our sanctuary is a room with chairs and a closet and a book. And what we do is the main spiritual practice is and in many ways, prayer is overrated. 
Jewish prayer has a lot to do with people understanding Judaism through the Protestant model of going to church on Sunday and going to mass. Like, but the true Jewish idea is the main part of the service is you take out the book and you read it and you would get enlightened. And you enlighten yourself with something you've never seen and you argue and Jason in the back road says, Rabbi, that was a really nice idea, but you are completely wrong. Right? I say Joseph was a jerk because he, he was always lorded and how special he was over his brother. And I give my great sermon, and Jason in the back says, You got him completely wrong. Joseph was completely awesome, and his brothers did him wrong, and you got it completely wrong. And I know this because I lived in it in my own life, blah, 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 blah. And so you argue over the meaning. There, the idea that the Bible has a literal meaning, or that a sentence can have a literal meaning, even that a word can have a literal meaning, is considered and heretical in Judaism. It is the opposite of faith. It's the idea that like, you're comparing the document that God wrote or inspired, you're comparing that to like you wrote something down. Because like, when we write, we write mostly literally. So you're saying God's just like you, just writes like literal stuff, like no deeper than that. That would be the opposite of faith. Um, and finally, that Judaism is highly pluralistic and regional, or, and not anymore. So this is where I'm transitioning into how things have affected world affairs. A really, really big one is this. Judaism over its history has been embodied in Jews. Jews in Italy, Jews in Egypt, Jews in France, Jews in Russia, Jews in America. And they have had wildly kind of different customs, kind of like the states in the United States of America. Their understanding of Jewish law has varied quite a bit. In America, it, it, it's been pluralistic. What I mean by pluralistic is, if you're in Texas, I can carry a gun into a school. If you're in Massachusetts, I get thrown in jail for carrying a gun into the school. Now we could say that one is wrong and one is right, but the American system is that both can be legitimate interpretations of the Constitution. And Judaism operated in this regional way. We shared the law, but the expressions of it were often very, very different in different communities, and that was perfectly acceptable. Then something happened in history, you may have heard of it, and it's called the internet. And after 3,000, Three plus that 3,200 years of Jewish history, something very, very dramatic happened. The internet happened. And when the internet happened, it threw the regional differences of Judaism kind of out the window. Because now communities could see, and they still do, overnight that a rabbi in Israel just said that something we all thought was okay is not okay. And then every rabbi in Teaneck, New Jersey, and Los Angeles, California, and Paris, right, and England, if they don't agree, they're considered too liberal. They're not the real Jews. And everyone scrambles, and this stuff is circulated like wildfire. I mean, the, the examples would bore you, but I'll just tell you that was very, very, when I, so, what counts as orthodox, traditional, most religious, fundamentalist Judaism, what I grew up with in the 1970s in Philadelphia, none of that's considered okay. 
I mean, it used to be we grew up in New York. You're allowed to, if, if a bus isn't stopping just for you, but it's stopping anyway, you can hop on. I grew up in New York. I, I was in New York City for a bunch of my life. You hop on the subway, you can do that on the Sabbath. They're not stopping just for you. Now, you get on the subway on the Sabbath, you're, I mean, you're a heretic, right? So what happened is the spread of information ratcheted up that the most strict interpretation would be the only authentic one. And then those authentic interpretations are framed as original. So for example, in Israel, it was always uh, the military choir plays on Independence Day. And women are drafted in Israel and serve in the military. Starting just about four or five years ago, some of the, the rabbis in Israel decided women can't sing in the military choir at the Independence Day celebration. And they quote this crazy rejected footnote in a minor commentary a long time ago that said, women's voices are so sexy that um, it's just too erotic. It was completely rejected years and years and years ago. It was, and it was a minor rabbi. And when the head of the city council in Jerusalem turned to the chief rabbi, I talked to her about it, and she said, where did this rule come from that women's voices are too sexy so they can't be heard in public? He said, my dear, it came from Mount Sinai. <laughs> and most people believe it. Um, also, the printing press. It sounds crazy, but the printing press is much more recent than we understand. And even before the internet, one of the phenomena that really changed things is one simple publisher, the publisher of Art Scroll. Art Scroll is a press. It was started by a couple of people with no particular qualifications. And they decided to publish books that told you what the real Jewish law is and real Judaism is. And in my life, when I walk around Poway and Rancho Bernardo, they're very beautiful books. They're like, they, they, they have presentation down, gorgeous, and bindings, and reasonably priced. And they're like, this is what the kosher is, and this is what this is, and this is what this is. And people consider it to be codes of Jewish law. Who are these people? And what knowledge do they have of Jewish law? And yet, now these are the Bible. And so the Jewish community is full of people who are newly religious, Baal Shuvah, as we were just talking about beforehand, and they get their information from books on the internet, and it has radically transformed what the authentic picture of the past is, because much of it for people like me, who is considered a fake rabbi, the Orthodox rabbis of this community won't count me in their quorum, I'm not allowed to co-officiate with them, I'm just this liberal fake who's lying to people like you. And I'm like, wow, it kind of discredits my 10 or 15 years of reading the codes of Jewish law in their original languages. I wonder why I bothered, you know, because I actually know what the law is. And I really wonder what their educations are. Do they just believe what the latest thing published is? And um, I wonder if my colleagues have more ideas than I do about that. One big idea that people get wrong is, in my opinion, is that in Judaism, the relationship that God has with humanity is communal. God is not walking, if God was here, let's just say God was looking at um, San Diego County today. God wouldn't do it as, let me look at Jason for a second. Jason, did you eat bacon for breakfast? Luckily, not today. Okay, good. I was just <laughs> Jason, did you speak a nice word to your neighbor? Jason, like, where, and what thoughts is Jason having? 
right? Much of a, many of us think of religion as God, my personal relationship with God and God's personal relationship with me. And Judaism has really been on the decline, especially among Jews, because I hate to break it to people, God really doesn't give a crap about what you did this morning. You know, and people just don't want to take it. They're like, they're like, I'm really sorry. But the basic idea is when God sits in judgment, God is looking at systems. God is looking at San Diego. God is looking at the church or at the temple. And the criteria that God is using is very clear. Are there people who are disabled that no one is helping? Are there people, are there women who are being battered or who's, or, or the men have uh, left them and the kids and, and married their secretaries, I mean, whatever it is. Is anyone hearing their silent despair in their cries? That essentially, the Bible, as we understand it, is a story about God has a plan for our species. And that species plan is that there will be a society that shows how we can live in a kind of balance where, yes, there will be inequality, and yes, there will be crime, and, we're, and yes, there will be imperfection. But if you have a justice system, and you have people who are paying attention to the canaries in the cold mine, the cries of the poor, the immigrants, even nature has rights in the Torah, then if no one pays attention to inequality, the cry of the, the immigrant, the cry of the refugee, the Torah had a, a unique idea, which is runaway slaves had to be taken in, which is crazy, um, and, uh, and, and protected, and allowed to live anywhere they want. If the society doesn't handle those things, over time, sometimes after hundreds of years, because God time and human time are a little different. That's why I'm saying the idea that, that God's just sitting there saying, Jason, what he did this morning, I'm just really disappointed with, he's even thinking right now about the rabbi. Like those thoughts, Jason, got a problem with. No. God's on a whole nother time zone. God is like in this long period of over hundreds of years. And basically what we understand the, the Bible to be saying is that if you don't pay attention to these people crying out, children who don't have fathers, immigrants, nature, um, et cetera, et cetera, the, the in, rampant inequality, eventually God will bring a cosmic consequence. I don't know, let's say global warming, right? The signs were there and you ignored them. And when global warming happens, then the innocent and the guilty both suffer. There's not a clear understanding that we feel in the Bible that God is really gonna be like, Jason, you're good. You get on the lifeboat, you know? <laughs> but Nadav, you know what? You know, like, you, you just, it, you've really been letting me down. Your faith has been not where it needs to be. You're not in the lifeboat. There's no promise in the Bible that we understand, except for the future messianic stuff, that in the present, God picked that, that innocent people, well, how can innocent people suffer? Innocent people suffer because other people let them suffer. That's the answer of the Bible, right? The society lets them suffer. Where's the justice system? Where's the professionalization of the justice system? And so that, then when people say to me, well, I can't be religious because righteous people suffer, I'm like, have you ever read the Bible? I'm, I'm sorry that you think it's all about you. Because that, that's, the Bible is saying God's whole plan is to introduce a set of ideals and principles and practical 
casuistic law to create a society that reduces inequality and that, and that basically establishes human rights. If I had to say, and you can tell me I'm dead wrong, what's the biggest effect of Judaism on current affairs or on the world, maybe I'm naive. I think the Bible introduced the idea of human rights. I mean, it lays it out. I mean, in the contemporary time of the biblical authors, um, let's just say in the Code of Hammurabi, it is, if a rich, if a noble and a peasant are in a dispute, there are completely different standards for judging them. I mean, they're a noble, or they're part of the royal family. Like, different rules apply to them. And when the Torah says, no, a justice system in which everyone's equal under the law, and the poor are not shown favoritism over the rich, and the rich are not shown favoritism, I mean, th these are the big ideas that have to do with establishing rights. Um, the prophets. Many of the prophets are read by, as predictions of a coming of a Messiah or as a code. But the way Jews understand Jeremiah, the Isaiahs, uh, Amos, Ezekiel, is that they functioned in the Jewish country basically for 1,000 years, from 1,000 BC to roughly 70, but a little, a little bit before then, let's just say, till the time of the Maccabees, so till around 200, uh, 1,000 BC to 200 BC. Their function was not, as in some other cultures, they do augurs for the king. They're part of the royal court. Should I go to war against Egypt? Call in the prophets. And the prophets are doing their augurs, and they're like, yes, this is an auspicious time, your royal highness. You will win the battle. Or you know, they were social critics. They were the people who essentially do the function of the free press today. And they'd stand out there, and they'd be like, my job is that the Torah says the king can't be rich. But have you seen the king's new palace? The Torah says the king's not above the law. Have you seen what's going on? The king said, you know, and, and they were gadflies. They basically functioned as a free press. And that's an extraordinary thing compared to other kinds of prophets in the ancient world. And that, I still think it opens up questions about the free press today. I, took, I take the free press for granted, but obviously one of the developments in the last 10 years is that most of us get our news through our phones and it's filtered through the people that we like. So that I am reinforced over and over again that this person's bad and that person's good. A lot of us don't even know what the truth is anymore. And that goes back to the kind of system that I want to read Trump's prophet. Or I want to read the anti-Trump prophet. And it, rather than the idea that a free press actually might have facts and actually do investigative journalism and try to hold people accountable in a nonpartisan but in, in um, so briefly put about that thing, meaning of life is not that as you, the meaning in life is not that you as a protagonist has God in your story. Where's God in your story? Where's your relationship with God? But the meaning in life comes from the privilege of being a minor character in God's story. And God's story is history. And that goes back to the Abrahamic idea of, so now what is it that God wants? I've mostly just said it. Severe limitation on the monarch's power, a professional legal system, investigative press. Um, our society, it's what I already said, our society is evaluated by the experience of those whose rights are being violated. And finally, and I know I'm cutting this part short, there's a universalist horizon to, well, where is the society supposed to be going? Um, 
it initially comes mostly in the anonymous prophet known as Second Isaiah, uh, and in some of the other prophets, the idea that all of this is leading to an evolutionary change for the species. Women's rights, a universalistic religion, a whole nother level for the whole world. And then people ask me, what's the Jewish concept of the Messiah? The easiest quote is from Franz Kafka, the amazing Czech-Jewish writer of short stories in the 20th century. He said, the Jewish notion of the Messiah is the Messiah will come when we don't need him anymore. <laughs> because the whole purpose is that what the prophetic movement through generations in history is doing is saying, you create a society in which things are not perfect. There is no ideal utopia coming. But let's say I'm swindled out of my life savings. Yes, my life's not going to be the same. But I'm not going to be living on the street and my children sold into slavery. That we have to make a society in which people who experience bad luck, are, have, are, are, their dignity is protected. And so if we create a society that kind of spreads through the world where there is human rights, justice, and other kinds of things, then it says, only, the Talmud says, only when we do that will the Messiah come to rule over the world which, as Kafka correctly says, is a very clever way of saying, you have to make the best society possible, and then God will send someone who says, good job. This is what I've been waiting for. He basically announces that you did the mission that you were given, starting with Abraham. Um, I, I already looked at that, and I'm looking at the time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you up on your offer to go five minutes over, because we started five minutes late, um, so I get on my time. Um, I wanted to mention one thing about this, which I, I mean, at this point, I think this is a big deal, but you might not think this is a big deal. But one of the things that I do think that comes out of religion, that sometimes influences the way people act, and the way people make policy, and the way people get involved in extreme groups, or non-extreme groups, or choose liberal, or, or choose fundamentalist, or whatever, is something that in the Second Temple period or in scholars sometimes call the tension between Aristotelianism and Platonism. And that may sound too fancy, but all I want to say is it's the idea, Platonism being the idea that there's an, a perfection that is possible. Um, the, like the society we're aiming at is not what that Nadav guy just said, a society that's pretty good like really, really good at human rights, but still has some lousy stuff going on. Someone could still swindle you, it might happen, right? Like someone might still beat somebody, but at least if they beat someone, that's a society in which that cry is heard and that woman is helped. But that's not good enough. What we need is utopia, a way in which our spirits are guided to where we naturally act with perfection. That's a platonic idea that there must be a perfect society, like there must be a perfect triangle. And human nature can be perfected. Aristotle had a very different view from Plato and Socrates, and I, I, I did a lot of my academic work in philosophy in Aristotle, but I liked him. And he has an idea that we start thinking that there's no perfection. There is the golden mean, and there is better and worse there's situational ethics. There's no perfect doctor. But you want a doctor who has really good judgment, does their best with the situation, 
has a curious mind in certain features. He has this idea that people are role models. But if you're looking for a saint, if you're expecting that we're not even going to need doctors anymore because we're going to make the perfect body or have a perfect machine, like, what is this need for purity? After 9-11, um, uh, 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 a writer I used to read, I think his name is, is Robert, I always forget his middle initial, Robert K., Robert J. Lifton, tried to understand what had happened with um, especially, he's a psychologist from Yale, why white kids in the West are attracted to extremist propaganda um, from the Islamic world, the extremist stuff. And he talks a lot in this book about some people's psychological need for something pure, See, in Judaism, the holy is, Jason got bored by what the rabbi said. He thought about having bacon this morning, right? But on the way home, he did a really nice thing. He called his mother. And he called his mother, and he didn't have to, and he was late to work. And he did this really, really nice thing. Like, in Judaism, he's a good boy. He's a good boy. We don't expect, like, perfection. And he's not a sinner because of the morning and not because of the afternoon. And so this idea that Lifton was talking about, which is for some people that's not good enough. Like they are craving an example of an ideal, a platonic ideal in perfection. And Judaism really rejected that at the time of the Talmud where you had multiple schools, multiple rabbis, different approaches, like I said, Egypt, Italy, Spain, everyone was doing their own thing, it was all okay. People had different expressions of something, and there wasn't a fight over, well, there can only be one perfect expression, and people have to be perfect. It's a, better, it, it's, a, it's a very good society that the Torah is going for, but it is not somehow a transformation that takes us to where um, we're all saints. Um, okay, so now I've got to talk about Israel for the last 10 minutes. And maybe I can find time for a couple of other things in, my, in the questions. In 1948, when Israel was founded, it was founded by secular Jews. People were definitely not religious. They were mostly socialists. And they didn't think much of giving the monopoly over marriage, burial, and conversion to the fundamentalist, very fundamentalist, very ultra-Orthodox rabbis who were in Israel. They're a very small minority, the ultra-Orthodox. But they didn't, they're like, you know what? Let's throw them a bone. Let's, I, you know, who cares? They can do marriages and weddings and burials and stuff like that. You add to that, that for people like me, very depressing, they adopted a parliamentary political system in which you don't vote for candidates, you vote for parties. I am not a political scientist, but I've read books by political scientists and many of you may know more about this than I do. But when you have a system in which you can have hundreds of parties and people vote for a party, you have an extraordinary set of special interests that end up in a room having to form a coalition. And when you are trying to form a coalition among dozens and dozens and dozens of tiny parties, and it really could be our only thing is that we want Russian language signs all over Israel. Or our only thing is we want no evolution in the curriculum in the schools. It's very easy to make coalition with one issue people. 
Other people are like me, I'm a complicated guy. I got lots of issues, right? My psychiatrist says so. And how do you make coalition with me? So in Israel, because of those two decisions, extremist parties wield amazing amounts of power and have perfected it over the last 70 years. Perfected it. They've really, you can follow it. They've gone from being like, all we care about is being in charge of the Ministry of Education so we control the curricula of the books, to now having, they, I mean, they control the uh, immigration ministry now, and they can decide whether I'm even allowed to travel to Israel, or whether I'm not Jewish enough, or whether, like when I was there, I got harassed a long time because I was at a conservative Jewish seminary, and I'm harassed by bureaucrats telling me, we have a new uh, order that says conservative Jews aren't allowed to have student visas. You know, and I, it, it's, it's like almost third world. And they, for 10% of the population, they have an enormous amount of influence in the government, and they've peddled their monopoly on marriage burial conversion into a large monopoly. And this is what I want to say about the role of religion in Israel. It's the last statement. If you want to understand what has happened with Judaism and in the world and Judaism in Israel, you won't find the answer in a book about Judaism. Look at Iran. You have a country largely pro-American, largely young, very cosmopolitan, very educated and sophisticated. Right? Whose lives in many ways are dominated by a tiny minority of clerics. I bring it up because if you saw the news, they're rioting right now. I thought Iran was a Muslim country. I thought they loved their imams. I thought they hated America and they hated Israel. For rabbis like me, when it comes to the Iran deal, when so many Jews were standing up saying, we got to bomb Iran, we got to bomb Iran, they're threatening Israel. Of course they're threatening Israel. There's nothing that Ahmadinejad wanted more than to be attacked by a, a bomber from Israel or the United States because he could declare martial law, he could win. He, he's a wildly unpopular president. And being controlled by clerics is wildly unpopular. So that rather than say, oh, look at this terrible thing, Islam, and what it's doing to the world, you have to look at the rise of fundamentalism in general. Frankly, I mean, I, I could try to talk about it all this through the Catholic Church. I mean, what happened to Vatican II? After Vatican II, I know that, I mean, 60 Minutes always provides lots of portraits saying every pope is like the most holy person who ever lived. But there was a shift after Vatican II, and there have been a lot of reactionary popes who have gone more like, we got to hold the line. We have to make social issues the place where we draw our line in the sand. And now you have the Pope now who's going in a different direction, which is very interesting because the Pope now is doing something very different than we might have expected. And so I really think that, as I mentioned earlier, that fundamentalism is a very way, a modern movement that is anti-modern, that is very much about power and control and it appeals to certain psychological dimensions. We can all brag about modernity, but modernity has a lot of problems. If modernity didn't have a lot of problems, I wouldn't have a lot of sermons. 
I mean, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know how I could just be an American without being a Jew. Because there are a lot of things that are not great about America and that need changing. So that there's a lot to, uh, to criticize. Okay, now I have got three pages you cannot read. And that's all on purpose. Okay, all design. But I have it here in case I need to refer to it on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I'm sure that there are others in this room that know things that I don't know, um, no matter how much I've studied it. And we have a big disagreement. I have to Because it's not primarily about religion. The context of the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 was not a bunch of Jews saying, we need a state. There was a context to it. I want to remind you that in 1924, the United States Congress passed an immigration act that labeled Jews as, in their words, slow of mind, retarded, and unable to be American. <laughs> they compared them, no offense, to Italians. <laughs> the 1920s was a very anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic um, and anti-immigrant period in American history. When the Nazis started up in, in oh, does anybody, so of course the United States removed, and they set quotas that basically prevented Jewish immigration to America because it was very anti-immigrant for the Jews who had come over between 1880 and the early 1920s. Now, of course, when the Holocaust happened, and we all know Jews were fleeing for their lives from the concentration camps, and they immigrated to America, the United States thankfully lifted the ban from the Immigration Act, right? No, they didn't. We turned away people by the thousands and tens of thousands to be sent back to ovens in which they were exterminated. Okay, well, Rabbi doesn't have much time. So uh, World War II ends, the Holocaust is over, you have over six million dead Jewish men, women, and children, you have somewhere under a million Jews who are, uh, who've lost everything, who are mentally scarred, who are skin and bones, many died after liberation because they were too weak to survive. So thank God the countries of the world took them in, including America. Nope, Jewish the, the American Anti-Immigration Act 1924 was still in effect. It wasn't actually officially removed from the books till the early 1960s. They were not allowed to come over. There was no country in Europe that would take them in. It was really an absurd situation. It's talked about really well by Harry Truman and it was talked really well by American soldiers who liberated the camps. And the Russians themselves, where they're like, they'd never seen anything like what they encountered. They wanted to help these people, and they couldn't believe their own country, no other country would take them in. And you know where Jews were basically put in displaced person camps? In the concentration camps. Many, they were not, so they ended up being like, well, we'll feed you from the Red Cross, but you're going to keep living in a concentration camp. What, the reason I bring this up, and I can bring up other things, is that... What happened in the Middle East has a lot to do with other countries' manipulation of both the Arab world and the Jewish world. And they always want to step out of it and say, this is an Arab-Jewish conflict. It is a much larger geopolitical conflict. It's much more interesting to see, why were the British controlling Palestine? And what were they doing? So when, in early, in, in, when, Holocaust refugees boarded makeshift ships 
and went to Palestine where American Jews and others gave them money to buy land from Arabs. When they arrived, the Arabs convinced the British to turn them away. The British finally like, this isn't worth it. There's no money in this. There's no glory in this. We're going to leave. And then the UN declared a partition plan to partition the country into two. And the Arabs said, no, we don't want them here at all. Yes, I, we, I'm trying to avoid the details. A lot of people want to make a lot of this detail. Well, there were Jews already there. There have been Jews since the time of the Romans. Yeah, it's true. Oh, Mark Twain said the whole land was empty uh, anyway. Mark Twain said, I went to the Holy Land. There was nothing there. And so it was pretty much empty. So this idea that it was full of Arabs isn't true. Eh, some truth in it, some falsehood in that. Um, you know, the Arabs and the Jews were all friends. And they lived side by side. And the Arabs made a lot of money, these Jordanian Arabs selling land to Jews. Eh, some truth in it, some falsehood. So rather than getting into these details, the UN kind of made a plan that the Arabs didn't want. But let's not forget that the Jewish country was attacked by all the surrounding Arab countries. Pal, I know, I got to fill this. I got, I got, but I'm going to finish my paragraph anyway, no matter how many times you go like So, um, so as Amos Oz, the Jewish-Israeli writer, says, sometimes he sees the Arabs and the Palestinian, the Palestinian Arabs and the Israelis as two children of the same abusive parent. The abusive parent basically being European colonialism and geopolitics and, and, and oil politics and, other, and, the, and the Cold War afterward. And often, two children from the same abusive parent abuse each other. Rather than, rather than trying to overcome it. I adopt that view. The, the Jews basically were more or less stuck there. It fit our, I don't know, messianic ideology and religion in a lot of ways, but it wasn't largely driven by that. Um, there was no safe place uh, in the world where Jews had been, uh, there had been terrible persecution. And at the same time, the Arabs kind of got stuck with these Jews moving into the land and didn't want them. The wars were terribly unfair against the Jews. The Palestinian Arabs, in my opinion, were victimized because they were basically told by the surrounding Arab countries, and there are different versions of this, so I'm welcome to a different history of this. But basically the way I see it is the Palestinians who lived in, in what is the, was the, the Jewish part of the partition, that they were told, you leave, and we are going to wipe out every Jew here. This is just after the Holocaust. We're going to massacre every Jew, and then you can move back. Well, the Jews weren't massacred, and they won the independence war, and those Palestinians were never left back. So that we have been in a terrible situation ever since. I hope since my time is up, you will ask me about Trump and Jerusalem <laughs> and what I think of it, because I know that's in the news. And I hope someone, I'm trying to trick you, someone help me out here. At some point, I hope someone asks me about the BDS movement which is also in the news, the boycott and divestment movement. And you can also welcome to ask me anything about the peace process, and I'll give you my answer on one foot. Thanks, Phyllis. Thank you very much. I have